paper cups inside of plastic cups. Welcome to Plastic Cups, Inside Paper Cups, Inside Plastic Cups. My name is Dennis Wilson, and this is... Omar Rabadi. Omar, good evening. Good evening. Good evening, sir. How are you today? I'm good. Um, what's the date? Today is December 10th, 2020. So we're almost done with 2020. 2021's right around the corner. I think it's going to be a better year, so excited about that. I mean, it would be hard not to, to, but are you one of those people that are like, oh, 2020? Like, I don't know. This this whole thing started, I feel like, in 2016, maybe? Like, oh, it's such a crappy year. And then it's like, I don't know. Bad stuff happens, like, every year. (laughs) Like, Yeah, I think it started in 2016, and people were always – you know, referencing celebrities who die, but celebrities die every year. It's not like there's a yeah. year where no celebrities die. Uh, but I guess 2020 has been, has actually been not that great. Right. No, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> see, that's the thing. Like, we shouldn't have cried wolf in 2016 and yeah. 18, 19. Like, yeah, we should have saved it. We should have saved it for this year. Right, right. <laughs> um, what else is What else is new? Nothing too exciting. I got a phone call and an email I wasn't expecting. It was the 76ers trying to sell me tickets to games that don't exist, which kind of surprised me. I kind of wished I knew it was them, and I picked up just to hear what their sales pitch was. But then I got the subsequent email of them being like, I should actually pull it up just so we could uh, see and I'll, I'll, I'll comment. Um, yeah, it's like, do you want to go to an exciting live sports event, but except it's not a live sporting event. It's it's basically a Zoom meeting where you watch basketball. Yeah, I'm not sure what if their pitch was, hey, get on the wait list for as soon as we're allowed to have people in the building, or if it was have your face on the screen yeah. or like scream into it. So. Yeah. So this is the email. As your personal connection, it's my job to ensure you receive access to inside offers and special experiences at 76ers home games. From 2020-21 season tickets to premium seating to group outings, I can assist you, blah, blah, blah. So it does seem like they're trying to sell actual physical tickets to the games, which I guess they're projecting that at some point in the summer that might be allowed. Seems I doubt it though, but I don't know. It's an interesting sales pitch. I I empathize though with the salespeople. They have have a tough job normally, especially during a pandemic, trying to sell tickets. Yeah, no, it's not not an easy gig, I'm sure. Um, I don't know if you caught this, not, not, well, kind of related because it has to do with, uh, gr- uh, events and group gatherings, but a uh, boot and saddle is closing down. I don't know if you heard that, the, the music venue on, on broad street. Yeah, I saw, I saw that, uh, yeah, it's sad. It's unfortunate that venues like that and other businesses are closing. I have a lot of good memories of boot and saddle. Remember we saw Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth there twice, which was really cool. Yeah. I've uh, seen a lot of cool local Philly bands, restorations, to name one. Uh, so, yeah, some really great national acts as well. So, really cool spot. It was kind of nice that, uh, you know, it was just, a, it was a small room and it was pretty quiet because the bar wasn't actually in the room where the music was happening. So, yeah, I don't you know. Really, you could really go and enjoy the music and it would sound really good without a lot of background noise. And then you could go out to the bar and, and do it, you know, drink and, and have a good time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Thurston Moore is probably my favorite um, show there. The first time we saw him and my friend's uh, band uh, flat Mary road did a record release party there not too long ago. So yeah, I mean, I feel like Philly was getting a lot of good 
small and medium small um, venues in the in the past like five years, and that's definitely gonna put a dent in that. So I don't know, maybe you know, in a year or so, somebody can reopen that once you get we can truly do live music again. But I don't think we'll be doing small music venues really until like maybe twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because Food Insider existed, I think, in the '80s and in the early '90s, and then it closed down, and then it was reopened about ten years ago. Not sure if I have those dates correct, but I know it was an old bar that was brought back. So hopefully, it'll have a third iteration. Yeah, it was a country western bar, hence the name Boot and Saddle. And my understanding was a lot of of the. Um, Sailors that used to be uh, docked in the Navy Yard used to come up and listen to country music there. I want to say there was probably more. It was probably earlier. I'm not sure when it closed down, uh, but by the by the, the look of the boot outside, you know, I mean that sign was definitely from like the the 50s. I want to say 50s, 60s. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it reopened. I guess it seems crazy when you said 10 years ago when it reopened, but it's it's probably it was probably close to that now. It seems like it's a new venue, but I guess now, now it's not a venue, but it, it didn't seem as new. Yeah. So that's sad, but um, yeah, hopefully can, some of those places will re- reopen eventually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I just looked it up. 2013 is when it reopened. So uh, seven yeah. years ago. And then it's looks, and according to this article, it was abandoned 20, not abandoned is a strong word. But that's the word they used in this article I'm looking up. So 20 years ago, 20 years before that is when it closed. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But who knows? I don't know what year it was open, but yeah, I guess it was yeah. there. Could have been there since the 50s or 60s. So. Yeah. Anyways, should we uh, get to some mailbag questions? Yeah, let's open up the mailbag. Okay, cool. First one is from Joe Cocker, and he his question is, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? So I, I wouldn't do that. I would sit and still hang out with you, Joe. Don't worry about it. Uh, what about you, Dennis? What would you do in that situation? No, I wouldn't stand up and... That's that would be really rude. I mean, I guess it depends on the setting, but you know, assuming it's just in a casual setting, I'd be like, hmm, this is interesting. Whether you're a good singer or not, I appreciate the effort. So, no, Joe, we wouldn't stand up nor walk out on you. Yeah, I feel like he's been asking that question for a while, and uh, you know, he should just just chill out a little bit, Joe. No one's gonna stand out and walk out on you. I guess he never got an answer on that. Um, Yeah, I guess not. He went to his grave without knowing. Yeah. No, I think he's still alive, Joe Cocker. Um, I don't know. I'll look it up. Oh, you're right. You're right. He died. He died six years ago. Yeah, and are you a Joe Cocker fan? (laughs) No, but I love that song. Uh, That's, I think that version of that that song is amazing. Uh, But this is the first... Mailback question we got from a dead person. So that's pretty cool. That, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, that is interesting. What about you? Are you a Joe Cocker fan? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't spent a lot of time with it, but I, I do like some of his earlier stuff. I'm actually, I'm not a big fan of his version of that song. Like, especially the one from Woodstock, I feel like is the most well-known one. But um, I like the, I like the Beatles version with Ringo singing. I, I think it's a, it's, it's fittingly endearing um, the way that, that Ringo does it. So, um, but yeah, I, I like, I mean, I think I need to get into Joe more. I think his band was really solid. Um, he had like, um, what's his name? Russell. Um, Leon Russell and his band from like uh, Oklahoma, I want to say, like he had a really good band going on for quite a few years. Um, so I, I think I would dig uh, Joe Cocker if I got, you know, like Madman, you know, what is it called? Madman in English or Madman Mad in Bulldogs or something is one of the like his really well known album. 
Uh, not so well known that I know the name of it, but um, I think I need to spend more time with Joe Cocker. I just looked up Leon Russell since you uh -huh. just mentioned him. This guy's got this guy's a cool looking dude. He's got like the white triangle beard, the long hair, the frowning mustache. Yeah, I'm curious well, about this. The dark sunglasses. Well, the crazy thing is like he looked like that in like 1968. <laughs> I, I don't know how old he was, but like I think he's still alive and he's he, like he must have been like 30 and he still had like a foot and a half long white hair. But yeah, uh, Leon Russell is interesting. I mean, he wrote a lot of good songs. Not as big of a fan of his voice and performances himself, but he uh, led a really good band. He played, you know, with everybody from Willie Nelson to Joe Cocker. Cool, cool. Yeah, I want to look more in, look into him a little bit more. Yeah. All right, another mailbag question. What is the better homophone? Flower, F-L-O-W-E-R, or flower, F-L-O-U-R? I would go with uh, F-L-O-W-E-R. Um, I like, I don't know, I like words with W. I think they're better looking. Um, I think I feel you can really lean into it and like, um, with that like flower, just like F L O U R, is just like flower, flower. Whereas flower with a W is like flower. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of the letter W. This was a close one because at first I was thinking like flowers look cool in the right setting and they smell good. Then I remembered like how good like bread that's in the process of being baked smells. And mm. I'm a big fan of red. So, and I assume flowers can be used in some other context too that are probably cool. But so I'm going to lean, I'm going to go with F-L-O-U-R, flower. Oh, okay. So you're going, all right, to each his own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about now was that a right, this, question? Did, did did somebody write that in? Because we did we did a homophone comparison. I yeah, I guess pe people are really curious about homophones lately. I, yeah. I, they probably heard the last one, so they're just like, you know, it's it's almost like serial killers inspiring other serial serial killers. Yeah, it's, it's, so a, I think that, it's just like that. Yeah. Okay. So our next mailbag question. This is from. Rocks, Roxana. All right. So if you could take a pill a day and you wouldn't have to worry about eating, feeling bloated after eating, et cetera, would you do it? Think of this time it would save you. No, I wouldn't. But I would do it if I could do it occasionally. I would certainly do it. Like if I had a busy day and, you know, um, or I wanted to be like get done and then go for a run or do something athletic. Um, I would go for that, but to like, but to, to totally get out the whole joy of remove the whole joy of like tasting and eating food and enjoying a meal with people. Um, no, I wouldn't get rid of that. It, it, so is it, is it, I guess the question is, is it like an all or nothing proposition? Yeah, let's say it's an all or nothing proposition. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I mean, what about you? Are you are you, um, you know, tired of the the labor of of consuming foods? I mean, I no, I wouldn't do this. I think I think it's getting carried away with efficiency and getting things done. And I mean, I think there's a place for that, but I think you know, you probably it's good to have a break from your day job or whatever you're doing, you know, eat, and then you get back to it. I think this, this kind of strikes me as like Silicon Valley inspired obsession with being like as efficient as possible. So I would say chill out, Roxanne. Yeah. I've, I've got this theory I've been working on in my head. It's kind of like, and I, I guess I'd sum it up as the tyranny of technology. 
Um, and not the sense of like the way we were like, oh, smartphones, smartphones will like ruin your brain and make us not pay attention to things. Um, it's more like like technology, like people who create technology and engineer things, like, you know, they do a lot of good things, but like this notion that like, oh, just because you can create a technology that can do something doesn't mean you should or that it will make life more enjoyable. And I think we fall into the in the into the fallacy of, you know, if technology can solve something, then we should embrace that. And so um that that would I would I would put that file that under the tyranny of technology. Nobody can take that. I'm gonna I'm gonna trademark that. It's already copyrighted. It's already trademarked. Oh. Uh, no, no, I mean, I just, we just did it right now for you. It's yours. Oh, thank you. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's a similar concept called the hedonic treadmill, which is, you know, new technology or new standards don't really make people happier because it just gives them a new baseline of expectation. I always think of this in relation to like television. Like I didn't, I didn't have more fun watching I didn't have less fun watching the 76ers in like the 90s before high, defi high definition TV because mm. I didn't know any better. It was like the tube TV is what there was and didn't occur to me that like, man, if there was just a better quality TV, this would be so much better. But now if I went back and tried to watch something in that the 90s level of quality, I'd be like, oh, wait, this isn't what I'm used to. So it sort of just creates this new standard, but I don't know if it actually improves the viewing experience. Right. Yeah, because we adjust to the the base, like it just becomes the new baseline. Um, it's like this, yeah, so I didn't know that this, I just Googled it, but like, so this hedonic treadmill is something, where did you learn about it? Uh, I read it somewhere. It was in some sort of uh, sociology book about about human advancement i can't i can't remember the name of the book but i, th I think it's, it's probably in a couple different places i usually don't remember something if i only read it once so i probably read it a few different places yeah interesting good question rocks was that roxanne rock rocky rocks roxana rocks roxana all right uh why don't we do one more? This is a good one. Yeah. This is this is from uh, Johnny98. It's like he's undercutting Johnny99. We got a question from Johnny99 before. Uh, do you remember, speaking of undercutting, do you remember, did you ever watch the Tom Green show when it was on? The Tom Green show? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I thought it was fantastic and ahead of its time. He did this one skit where he was from Undercutter's Pizza, and he would, like, follow a pizza delivery person and just, like, interrupt him and be like, hey, I'll sell you this pizza for $5 instead. I don't know. That just popped in my head. It was an amazing skit. Interesting. I don't remember that one, but maybe I'll Google it later. All right. So from Johnny98, if you were the holidays are, and you had the power to create a new holiday, what would it be? Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of make a demarcation in, in holidays here. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do like a a national holiday, like a like a day of remembrance, because I feel like because that gets tricky because like there's too many potential candidates for what should be recognized. So it's like you know, like Martin Luther King Day and Veterans Day and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm going to look at it more like, uh, um, you know, Halloween, Christmas. Christmas, I think, think of it more of a civic holiday anyway, as opposed to um, remembering somebody who probably didn't exist. Um, so let's see. A holiday. I think we should make, I mean, this is, so I'm going to steal something. I'm going to steal something from the... Um, from like the Nordics and specifically the Swedes I know are, are big on, um, what is it? Summer. Um, Oh, what's it called? Summer solstice. Yeah. Like the summer solstice. Um, they, this is what I know. Cause I used to work from a Swedish company. Um, 
and they would uh, IKEA. Yes, no, it was no, it was a small <laughs> consulting, consulting firm, but uh, I they would, you know, they would go out into the the fields and the wild, like the fields, and they would put up a maypole, like a big log, and they would dance around it and drink schnapps and eat herring. And it sounded like a great time and they party because the Swedes party like crazy. They would just, you know, they would just drink stops for like the whole weekend. Um, so like, I like, I like that, the idea of celebrating the changing of the season more. And especially that it's called Midsummers, right? Um, and it's celebrating the summer solstice. And that's, I like that because I think that we should, um, uh, you know, celebrate the seasons more. I like the seasons. I like the change. And I guess that's speaking for somebody, you know, you know, people from the Northeast who experience more seasonality, but, um, and they, you know, I guess the, the Swedes, like, cause they, they, they suffer through a lot of darkness. So for them, it's like the seasons are a really big deal, but I, I like the idea of, of doing like a seasonal kind of thing. I don't think I'd want to do the winter one. Cause it's like, even though when it becomes winter, it's like, eh, it's still winter really. Or when it stops being winter. So that, that'd be my take. It's like, do something like around the seasons. Cool. Cool. So three, three holidays and we just skip celebrating <laughs> that well, winter is coming. If, if I'm just adding one, I would just do, I would just do this, this, the summer because but there's also something that like, you know, as opposed to these holidays that are like, um, you know, like based on, I don't know, mythology and like ethereal-ness, um, you know, Thanksgiving, it, not based on its historical meaning, but like it's how it's practiced is like family and eating and like it's the like after it's like kind of harvest festival kind of thing. So it's it is related to kind of the seasonality and like and the earth. So I like I, I would like more holidays that relate to the that ground you in the in the the, the terra firma. So. What about you? What's what's what holiday would you nominate? Yeah, so I've been chewing on this for the last few minutes, and when I saw the email earlier, but I think I'd like to start uh, a day of silence, and I don't mean that in any sort of religious or remembrance term, but I mean actual silence. Like I think it would be cool for everybody to just have a day where they have their electronics turned off. They're not listening to this podcast or any other podcast. Uh, They're maybe meditating. Maybe if they're religious, they're going to church or whatever religious institution they go to and just doing their best not to communicate with anybody, either electronically, obviously, you know, if you have kids, you have to talk to your kids, but, you know, just doing, do, doing their best. It's a day off. So at least you're not communicating with any of your coworkers. So a, a day to just live in silence to, to think. Mm, I like that a lot. That's a good one. Hmm. So have you, have you done that before? Have you done a day of like, just like nothing? Like no, no watching of TV, checking your phone. I guess you know, probably not go to the store. Have you done that before? I've never done. I don't think I've ever done an entire day of it. I've uh, at times like at six or seven p.m. just put away all my electronics and then just you know either read or played guitar or just. Uh, walked around and that type of stuff and just sort of like detuned mm. that way. But I haven't done it for an entire day. No, mm. but I, maybe I should try it, especially if I'm proposing this holiday as the holidays are, I should probably try it once. first. Yeah. I was thinking that'd be, I guess, you know, the only time I do that is if I go like go camping, it's like, you know, yeah. turn, off, turn off your phone. Um, Especially if it's like, you know, you're doing backcountry camping and you're not trying to like party and have a, you know, like as big group of people. It's just like, you know, you just don't end up checking your phone. So that's one of the reasons why I like, you know, going camping. Cool. Cool. So who do we talk to? Is there an administration, administration, the ministry of uh, 
of of holidays and anything like that? I'm not sure. I assume creating a new holiday. Actually, I'm pretty sure creating a new holiday requires an act of Congress. So you would need, you know, House of Representatives to pass it, Senate to pass it, President to sign it. So I don't. You know, what would be cool is like a a grassroots holiday where everybody just agrees, like we're taking it off, you know. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, you could do that as like, a, I mean, if we I said I was separating like days of remembrance and stuff like that, but you could like, you could do that, you know, you could just like grassroots, like, yep, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing this. Um, we're, you know, and, and it just spreads like, um, you know, virally or whatever, and kind of like a day of remembrance, a day of protest. I feel like that's the kind of thing that is worthy of that kind of um, effort as opposed to like, I mean, I like your idea a lot, um, and, and my mine as well. But like, I think that that's less likely to take off. But that could be kind of a cool way to start a holiday. That people are going to be like, oh, I guess we're going to just have to have this holiday because everybody's like taking it off. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you can get a lot of buying from that because who doesn't want another day off? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Some food for thought. Yeah, so I think that's about all we got for mailbag questions. Please send us your mailbag questions at plasticcupsinsidepapercups at gmail.com. Plasticcupsinsidepapercups at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yep, send them away. And also you can mail Omar at uh, 2222 Boogie Woogie Avenue. Yep. Should we get to our first topic then? Yeah, let's do it. Do you want to start with um, the organic topic? Uh, sure. All right. So we thought today that it would be interesting to discuss what is organic food, what is what are the benefits of it, what are the downsides of it, because I've always been aware of organic food, but I never, until recently, I never really gave much thought to what it actually meant and what, you know, the debate surrounding it was. So, you know, we looked into it a little bit and, you know, some interesting stuff. So, uh, yeah. So like usually when we talk about a topic, like important topics, like the, you know, the animal of the week or something like that, I'll go to a Wikipedia. So I'm just going to start up, start up the Wikipedia page. So ready? All right. So yep. got the Wikipedia up, go for it. All right, so what organic means does vary country by country, but for the sake of keeping this simple, we'll just stick with in, in the United States. So typically it means no chemical fertilizers are used, generally no pesticides, although there's some exceptions for fertilizers that use uh, organic ingredients. Uh, the crops are rotated, so it's not the same crop in the same spot over and over again. The theory behind that is it's better for the soil. Uh, it varies with animals, what's considered organic, depending on the animal. But, for example, with cows, they have to be able to graze for one-third of the year. Uh, chickens and cows have to have access to the outdoors. Uh, no antibiotics or growth hormones for the animals. And, you know, there's some other things, no GMOs, uh, no sewage sludge. So th that's, you know, a general overview of what, what it means to be organic. Mm -hmm. and and we're, ta we're talking about like the USDA organic certification essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is what gets the USDA certification. Uh, now, the United States does have uh, agreements with other countries that will sell your organic food as organic as long mm. as you sell our organic food as organic. And, you know, there might be some slight differences between, right. you know, you might, if you see something that's organic from the Netherlands, you know, the rules might be a little bit different and it might still be sold in the U.S. Right. Under oh. organic, just because, you know, there's a agreement between the two countries regarding that. 
Yeah, I never thought about that, but that's that's interesting. Okay, so uh, these are the pro-organic food arguments, the, ar the arguments that says it's better. So one big thing is proponents of organic food say it's better for the environment. So one of the issues is manure is used instead of chemical fertilizers, which might sound gross, but you know that's how things have been fertilized basically since the beginning of time. Uh, it takes less energy, which leads to less pollution, including carbon emissions. So, you know, if you have if you have like a diverse a diverse farm with you know crops being grown and animals going around, the idea is the waste. The waste from the animals is it's already it's already there. It's already happening. You don't need to like you don't you don't need to bring it in. You know, it's sort of like its own little ecosystem. Right. Yeah. It's more akin to a, a natural ecosystem in a way. Yes. Uh, I already touched on this, but crop rotation cuts down on soil erosion. You know, it's it's bad for the earth to have the same plants over and over in the same spot. Yeah. Big, uh, I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. Uh, also, the argument is there's going to be less there's going to be less runoff for streams and rivers nearby just because. Uh, oh, sorry. This is back. This is back to the manure argument. Right. Uh, the manure is more likely to be absor absorbed by the soil than, say, sewage sludge that had or fertilizer that had to be brought in. So they're, they're saying there'll be less runoff in livers and rakes, lakes nearby. Uh, but here's a downside of organic food being better for the environment or against that argument. So or organic food takes up a lot more space or 25% more farmland. So you can decide for yourself if that's a lot more or a little bit more. So, you know, that's less, that's less space for other things going on, like potentially forest land or a, another natural ecosystem. So I don't know. What do you think of that argument? Well, I mean, I think it depends. I mean, I, I think it's a valid argument, and I, I don't think I could judge it one way or the other. But I think it depends on it very. It varies greatly from country to country and socioeconomic, you know, background of the people as well as the environment there. Like in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. is like a really good place to grow produce. Not all kinds of produce, but it's very. We have we're very privileged with like the the, the richness of our soil um, throughout the country. Not everywhere, but you know, and and we're not you know we're not fighting, even though people are under resourced when it comes to food and there's food deserts and all that. Um, we're not necessarily um, overpopulated and really challenged to feed our people. Um, there are other obviously problems with the food supply chain and the quality of food in the U.S. But, you know, in other countries, I think it's a lot more of, it's a way more of a challenge to, to feed the people. And so a 25% more use of land is, is, I think, at scale, a big problem, as well as where, you know, you know, I don't believe that we're like challenged in the U.S. for having farmland. Like we have a lot of farmland, but in other countries, it is a matter of like cutting down rainforests to, um, to create you know to create uh, a land for growing crops and for livestock, and so that is also a problem. So, I guess it's 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 hard to answer that like globally or um, across you know a blanket you know blanket statement of like oh that's good or bad or that's a valid criticism. I think it's a valid criticism depending on what the situation is in any region. Yeah, yeah, and in the, at least in the United States, it seems unlikely that uh, that any farmland that 
isn't used organically. Let's say, let's say someone decided to have a non-organic standard farm and it's taking up less space. It seems unlikely in the United States that that would be, that it would remain a natural habitat. It would probably be a, a housing development or a business or something like that. It, it, you know, it seems unlikely it would just remain, you know, nature left alone. Right. Uh, so another, another issue with organic food is the, whether it's more nutritious or not. So I looked into this, you know, not everybody, there's some disagreement on this, but generally the research shows organic food is not more nutritious. Uh, there were some studies here and there that showed, you know, that showed some nutrients were more present in organic food than non-organic food, but seemed like pretty small amounts. And, and there wasn't really evidence to say that made people actually healthier just because they may have been getting a little bit more of a nutrient. You know, the, the theory would be, hey, if you're feeding animals better food or if you're feeding, you know, giving better nutrients to plants, then those plants are going to be healthier. But it doesn't seem like there's much evidence that actually bears that out. So it doesn't seem like a great reason to eat organic food. What do you yeah, think that's about what, that? I mean, that, that's what I'm, I'm very curious about. Um, I don't know enough about it. I've heard both sides of the story. I had a conversation about this this past summer with somebody who's a very strong advocate of plant-based diets and organic food. Um, I guess the question, I don't know if you, like when you were talking about the nutritional, the nutrition is like, there's two, two, two ways to look at it, right? There's like the say the vegetable has a certain amount of nutrients in it. And then there's also like your ability of your body to absorb those nutrients. So like what, like, you know, when we say something has nutritional value, is it look at like the actual, like if I eat an organic and I eat a non-organic tomato, um, is, is the actual, my ability to absorb the nutrients dramatically different as opposed to like what's innately in that, that, vegetable. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so from my preliminary research, and I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on this, just sort of look into it out of curiosity, but from what I read, for the most part, uh, the nutrients are basically the same usually. Uh, so, you know, an organic tomato and a non-organic tomato, assuming it's the same species of tomato, uh, there's not going to be there's not going to be a difference in the nutrients in it. Now there were some exceptions with that, uh, but even with those exceptions, go to the second point you were making. The issue is: are, is it realistic that the difference is enough, and that people are going to get enough of that nutrient that it's actually going to make them healthier in some measured way? And the answer seems to be no. Now, some people might say they feel better and that, you know, science is limited in what it's able to measure with those things. Like, you know, science might not necessarily be able to measure somebody having more energy or being, uh, having less brain fog and things like that. So people do make those type of arguments. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's definitive, but I would say there's not there's not much evidence to point to organic food being actually more nutritious. That's I mean, I think a lot of people would some people would consider that a very bold statement. So it's definitely something I'm going to look into more because I I, I kind of always felt that way. But it, it, I'm assuming you're looking at some pretty good good sources on this. Scientific sources are legitimate. Yeah, like I looked at stuff cited by, you know, the USDA. I kind of used them yeah. as a starting point. And, uh, you know, I started sites like National Geographic and sort of like explored and, you know, AP and just sort of explored from there and 
try to, you know, try to look at like what actual, uh, you know, citations and, not, you know, not, not so much like quotes from articles, but uh, what's that, what's actually being cited in those type of articles. And again, yeah, yeah just sort of a starting point. I, I could be, I could be off on some of this stuff. I'm not an expert, but then again, sometimes, you know, it's, it's hard to find actual unbiased experts. Like if we were like, Hey, who wants to come on this podcast and talk to us about organic food? It's probably going to be so, and if it's someone who feels passionate about it, I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the person to trust either. Right. I mean, I do trust the USDA to be looking at it and, and they're doing scientific peer reviewed science as well as, I'm assuming citing um, peer-reviewed science. So that's a pretty good place to start, you know? And um, so I agree. If you might, we could get somebody that's very passionate about it, but are, are they looking at peer-reviewed science? You know, the same kind of arguments I've heard, not even arguments, but I guess arguments against like GMO, you know, usually a lot of those are not backed up by science. <laughs> you know, it's backed up by kind of intuition and, um, that kind of thing. Um, but um, are other criticisms? Yeah, so the GMO uh, topic is actually, uh, I wasn't planning on getting into that, but yeah, that's actually another criticism that organic foods can't be genetically modified. And, you know, some people would say, well, there's evidence that genetic, genetically modified food is beneficial in certain ways. It could actually really cut down on the need for pesticides and other harmful chemicals, but that, yeah. So sorry, go ahead. No, that's what I was just asking about is like, what other criticism that's, that's what I was curious about was like, I've heard the argument of, um, yeah, like what you just said about requiring, um, more pesticides because you, you're not using genetic, genetic modification to be more pest resistant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as other criticisms, I saw some criticisms from animal rights activists saying that the access to outdoor standard is misleading for animals because just having access to the outdoors doesn't actually mean that much if, uh, you know, if, if the chickens are held in really, really crowded indoor spaces and like there's a door open, you know, that it seems to be such a low standard for what's access to the outdoors. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, so that was a criticism from animal rights activists that they said uh, these labels can often be really, really misleading. People shouldn't assume just because it says, you know, it's organic food or free range or whatever, that it, the animals are actually being treated better than they would on a non-organic farm. Yeah. Um, going back to the GMO thing, um, is, um, is, is, this, is this connects to what I was saying earlier about saying, like, you know, there are good things about organic food that we talked about, but can you say that everybody can embrace that across the board? And with the GMO thing, like I read a, a story years ago about, you know, I think it was in India and farmers growing yellow rice. And it was like, they were in, in, in dire straits in the, the ability to grow in that land, um, yellow rice and to survive. And then when they introduced GMO yellow rice, that, that it was a game changer. And to suggest that, across the board, GMO is bad because X, Y, and Z um, is very privileged point of view. So again, I think it matters. Are there bad, are there downsides to this, some of the GMO? I, I believe there is. Um, but is it is it fair to say across the board, it's like not a good thing? Um, I think that's a very privileged point of view. And that's kind of the thing that I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I've, I've gotten more on board with organic food. Um, and the one thing we haven't talked about is taste. So we should, we should come to that. But I do think there's a high degree of privilege around or, organic food that, that bothers me. And it's like a very, you know, um, uh, fluent white person kind of thing. Omar, did I lose you? 
Sorry, I muted myself. All right, so let's talk about taste then. Uh, do you notice a difference in taste? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, it depends. So this is this is funny. Um, just had a conversation about this with with Bo last well around Thanksgiving. Um, I notice a taste. It depends on what it is. Like with organic chicken, like farm raised organic chicken, definitely better than you know not. And vegetables like tomatoes, sure. But Bo wanted to buy organic celery. And I'm like, celery just tastes like celery. It's like, <laughs> you're usually just using it as like a flavoring agent kind of. So it's like, you know, we don't usually eat just like break out some celery and eat it. So it's like, are you going to taste a difference? Well, you, I've placed $1,000 on the fact that you can tell the difference. And we were putting it in stuffing. So it's like, it's got like a stovetop stuffing. So it was like a bunch of like spices and sodium and all this stuff. And I was like, um, we're pretty sure you're not going to taste that three dollars difference for that um, that that you know bunch of uh, organic celery. So, but but yeah, I mean, I do I definitely taste it like heirloom tomatoes versus like um, just whatever random tomato um, for sure. Um, well, yeah, heirloom heirloom tomatoes are delicious, and but I always thought of them as just like a different. A different plant than regular tomatoes. Or do they taste better because they're heirloom tomatoes, or is that kind of in, or is that kind of implied in the definition of heirloom tomatoes that they they haven't been that they're sort of like exactly the same as naturally grown tomatoes, and they haven't been altered. Um, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I believe that that's true because. Like that's why they're like they're kind of green and orange and they're shaped weird and they're kind of mushy in some places. Um, so because it's not the consistently like you know made for TV red round tomato that like Middle America wants to buy. Um, so I, I believe that to be the case um, that they are a they're a kind of they're they're I don't know to me they're like a representation of the most organic looking kind of thing. I don't think, I mean, it doesn't have to be like that, but like, I believe heirloom means it's not, it's not GMO. It's because it's not, hasn't been refined to have the, the, the characteristics and uh, fortitudinal character of, uh, of uh, a plant that can be uh, grown at scale uh, reliably. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. But if somebody, if, you know, if somebody, an heirloom specialist wants to come on. Um, yeah, and so it's not just the taste. It's, like, the diversity of taste, right? Like, so, the, you know, um, I'm trying to think of the, the, the chef um, from, he run, he's from uh, South Carolina. He runs uh, the restaurant Husk, among, among others, it's from Charleston. I'll, I'll put this in once I remember the name. Sean Brock. You know he's um, uh, you know he's worked with a lot of vendors who are using um, you know heirloom seeds of different varieties for you know whether it's flour or wheat or corn or you know all these different plants that like were you know all all over the country there were kind of naturally occurring versions of a squash right there was thousands and thousands of different kinds of squash and you know through the the, the the momentum of like industrial farming, those things um, fell by the wayside. And once the, you know, the people in that region stopped farming for themselves and were buying grocery stores, you know, they were lost forever, or in some cases maybe preserved in, in a very limited sense, but the diversity of what a squash could taste like, or just one specific kind of like a summer squash, you know, or a spaghetti squash, like, it, it was just a more diverse palette of flavors that you could get from a single uh, varietal. So like that has definitely been lost. And I think that that's, you know, the, the regionalism, the culture of, of a cuisine, um, you know, has been mainstream, has been lost and therefore mainstream and blended. Um, it's kind of like, go back to what we were talking about, like technology, just, you know, you can do certain things and there's understandable reasons of like why you would want to create an industrial farm system and make food cheaper and more affordable. Um, you know, ultimately it should be because you, you want to, you want to, um, uh, 
provide more food to, to, to people so they're more healthy. And that has not been the result. You know, um, the food system is all screwed up. Um, but, but there's definitely a downside to like not having that diversity of flavor and the, the connection to like, you know, culture and, and region that it used to be the case in, in American and all, in cuisine across the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of amazing when you go to the supermarket and, you know, you look at whatever fruit it is, whether it's bananas or apples or whatever, and how they all look the same. And I assume, you know, I assume if, if you saw a, a wild-grown fruit in nature, there'd be a little bit more variety in how they look. At least that's at least that's kind of a distinction I see, like, you know, walking around if I see the neighborhood farmer's market. It kind of seems like not all the apples or whatever look exactly the same. Right, yeah, and, like... Um... Yeah, there's just, I mean, there's been plants that have gone, you know, that there's probably whole, you know, um, what do they call it? I don't know, varietals of fruits that haven't been maintained. And like, yeah, if you go to like, you buy from a, you buy, you go out in the country or, you know, go up to Finger Lakes or something, you buy from a, a farm stand, you know, that doesn't look like they're not throwing out. That's the other thing. There's a huge amount of waste because... Um, Americans have been trained to say like, oh, this is what a good tomato, this is what a good watermelon looks like, and this was what a bad one um, by these very basic heuristics. Um, but like you go to a farmer's market or a farm stand out in the country and it's like, they're not throwing this stuff away because, you know, people just are like, oh, they've seen that food grown that way. You know, sometimes like squash are all like weird and crooked looking and they don't, you know, but like there's a lot of food waste because of the perception of the, the Americans been trained to, of like what a proper fruit or vegetable is. So that's another downside of, it's not necessarily a criticism against organic or not. It's just a, you know, we're getting more, I guess, into what are the downsides and byproducts of a more industrial based um, uh, produce system. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does seem like something's, been lost, you know, if there was an actual distinction between, hey, the fruit in Missouri tastes a little bit different than the fruit in, I don't know, Texas or wherever. And once that sort of goes away, it does kind of seem like that is an actual loss. Yeah. And, and then people lose passion. I mean, there's, I think a, there's definitely a reawakening of food. And it's, it's not just like, I mean, cuisine like I say, like dining has been uplifted in in America in the past like twenty years, but it's just in general. I think an, like an awakening of like like the goodness of good food and like um, you know people like when you grow food and when you're like passionate about like local cuisine, local ethnic food, or whatever it may be. Like when you're more passionate about food, you t- I think you typically eat a lot more healthy because you have more of a connection to like what that food is and what goes into it. Um, you know, like just like, you know, um, community gardens and, and different programs to grow food in, in like urban areas. Like I have positive effects on like, you know, food, like health, but also attitudes like is a big deal. So like, I think, I think that that's, you know, it's good, I guess <laughs> getting off a little bit off topic, but that's, there's, you know, that's an important thing for people to feel passionate about food so that they're eating good, good stuff and it, it'll make them feel better and be healthier. It's a big problem, you know, obesity and, and, and nutrition is a big deal in this, this country. It, it contributes to a huge amount of uh, unhappiness and healthcare costs and all sorts of things. Don't worry about going off topic. The whole point of this podcast is to go off. <laughs> well, there's I, there's one book. So I'm a big fan of. Um, I want to make sure I get his name right. I remember his name. Like, have you seen the like the food series on Netflix? It's like, um, like flame, fire, um, like fire, water. I I haven't seen it. I think I saw the. Oh yeah, yeah. So, it. it's, it's, so yeah, I was gonna recommend 
cooked by Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan, like, um, I'm probably stealing a lot of ideas from him. Um, really good on kind of like the history of food, the meaning of food, um, like, and the and the and the one book in particular. I actually haven't read it. I might have it, but he did a book on I believe the history of apple, the apple in America and apple seeds. Um, you know, it, it connects really well to what we're talking about. Kind of makes me want to go back and read that book, which was recommended to me ages ago. Um, I'll put it in the description if I, uh, once I, f- I figure out the name, but yeah, Michael Pollan is really good for this kind of topic. Um, looks at it from a cultural and historical and scientific perspective. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I've, uh, read some of his stuff. He recently wrote a book about the history of caffeine, which was really interesting. Oh, right. Yeah. You told, told me about that book and, he also wrote a really good article um, on on poppy flowers and poppy seeds and heroin. <laughs> it was really good. Cool, cool. So uh, one one last thing with regards to organic food. Uh, so you know, we started off by talking about pet. Dennis. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, we started off talking about pesticides and intesticides, and that's a major reason why people eat organic versus non-organic. So uh, organic food is more is less likely to have traces of pesticides. So 7% of organic food have traces of pesticides versus 30%, 8% of non-organic food. According to like the U- USDA, and some other organizations, though, the traces are very small and that they're not enough to be harmful. With that being said, there have been lawsuits won by plaintiffs with regards to people getting sick and cancer from organic, sorry, from non-organic food. So I don't know. As far as I could tell, it seemed it seemed pretty rare and it seemed like there's a lot of different factors going into why someone may or may not get cancer and the science is far from settled on it. But as a baseline, non-organic food is more likely to have traces of pesticides in it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't begrudge anyone from saying, Hey, I don't really, that freaks me out. I don't really want to take the chance, so I'm just going to stick with organic food to avoid any traces of pesticides. I don't know. Does that factor into your thinking when you're at the grocery store at all? No. I think traces of everything are on everything. Like, and You're probably better off having some traces of pesticides. There's probably traces of, traces of fecal matter and stuff you eat. Like, you know, get over it. You're fine. Okay. And uh, I think that's about all we have on this topic. Uh, do we do we want to do another one? Let's so, let's do it. Let's do a quick holiday Christmas movie. How about that? Okay. All right. So um, yeah, let's just hit this quick. Um, so I was curious, you know, what are your top um, holiday movies? You know. I guess Christmas, Hanukkah, any any holiday that happens in the winter months. Uh, do you have any favorites? Do you like watch certain ones like year to year? Uh, I wouldn't say I watch any ones year to year. It's a Wonderful Life is a, probably my favorite Christmas movie. Although the more I watch it, the more I'm like, man, people really couldn't act that well back then. It's like everyone's like constantly projecting their voice so loud, but whatever, it's the 50s. Uh, So It's a Wonderful Life is pretty good. I'm not a huge holiday movie guy. I'm trying to think what else I, I really like. I don't know. Why don't you give me your top one and then I'll see if I can think of something else. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say my top one is, well, no, definitely my top one is uh, a Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. Um, 
by far my favorite. We'll definitely watch that on an annual basis. Um, big fan of, you know, Chevy Chase in general. Um, and that, that's when he was top, uh, top of his game. So that'd be my top one. And then, I don't know, lately Bo's been getting into, in recent years, watching Home Alone a lot. Um, that's a good one. I don't say, I don't usually put that on myself, but I'll, I'll definitely watch, watch it if it's on. Um, either of those tickle your fancy, ring your jingle bell. No, I haven't. I don't think I even liked Home Alone when I was a kid. I don't know why. There's something about it that I don't know. And then when they came out with the second one, it was like, come on, really? You're gonna like lose them again on Christmas. But uh, I, I. I really like, now that I think of it, I really like, I like any version of A Christmas Carol, like the Scrooge with Bill Murray. There was a Mickey Mouse version of it I liked when I was a kid. I love the Mickey Mouse one. Yeah. Uh, so any, any version of Scrooge, I love it. Well, that's interesting. I do love that, that uh, Mickey Mouse, um, I guess, Disney one. Um, interesting, bring it back to the Swedes. The Swedes have a tradition of watching Donald Duck cartoons for Christmas. Hmm. I wonder how that tradition got started. I would have to go back and do some research, but my boss was like, oh yeah, every Christmas we watch Donald Duck. (laughs) I'm like, what are you talking about? And it wasn't just the Christmas Carol thing. It was like Donald And you're sure she you're sure she didn't just mean her family? She meant like all the Sweden. Um I no, I believe it was a Swedish um Swedish trans uh tradition. Yeah, so I just Googled it really quick. There's a slate article from 2009 called titled Nordic Quack. Um and it says Sweden's bizarre tradition of watching Donald Duck cartoons on Christmas Eve. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a thing. Cool, cool. Yeah, I've never, maybe I'll try that on Christmas. Yeah. Why, on why Christmas Eve. See, see if it does something for me. Yeah, you can drink some Grug and watch some Donald Duck. Um, yeah, it's always, it's always good to start a new tradition. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll drop this this link in the. Um, I, I remember this conversation had, so I'll drop this link in the uh, in the comments section. Um, so should we wrap things up there? Any uh, closing remarks or thoughts? No, let's wrap let's wrap things up there. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, for anybody who made it to the end, maybe we should have said that this at the top of the hour, but. Um, for our 20th uh, anniversary episodes coming up, we'll get some, some surprises in store. So until then, be good. Be plastic and be paper and be good to each other. Right on. All right. Peace out, everybody. Oh, the poor old dirt farmer, he's lost all his corn.
He can't grow no 